First to the promised rebuild of Australia's foreign aid program after a decade of budget cuts. Earlier this month, the Albanese government launched Australia's new international development policy with notably bipartisan support too, and that's by itself viewed as progress by experts in the field. This policy aims to reset thinking big time about how we spend our aid money, especially in the Indo-Pacific region. As the Foreign Minister summed it up, you won't have stability there unless people move out of poverty. And that should be a priority for defence and aid types, that the resulting bigger thinking about general uplift is in our national interest, not merely a response to the competition for influence with China. For an assessment, we're joined by Melissa Connolly-Tyler, who's an international development specialist and an ex-diplomat. Melissa, welcome back to Saturday Extra. Good morning, Geraldine. Could you bring us up to speed, please? What's been the situation in relation to Australia's aid and development program over, say, the last 10 to 15 years? Mm. So this is the first policy in 10 years. Uh, The last government made an attempt. Uh, They started doing consultations for a development policy, but then COVID hit and what we got was just a sort of interim, let's try to cope sort of document. Um, But as you say, the the wider context is really those massive cuts to the aid program under the Abbott years where, you know, in the course of just one budget night, you saw a huge chunk of our development program just disappear. And the sector is really still been recovering. Uh, And would you say that this new development policy um, really does amount to something tangible, I suppose, Mm. and durable that in effect uh, we believe and people in the region believe? Because some observers have said it's amazing what little comment has come from people in the region, rather disappointing actually, um, given the the new focus. Do they just see it as words, do you think? Hmm. Yeah, look, I personally, I'm really impressed by it. Um, and, and I think the primary audience for the document is actually within Australia. It's about making the case for the development spending that we do. Um, and you need to do that. You know, um, it's not easy for people in Australia either. And you have to explain why we need a development program the same way you explain why we need a defence program. You know, that if you think of it from our perspective, you know, 22 of our 26 closest neighbours in Australia are developing countries. If we want to influence the region around us, we have to be involved in what they care about. You know, the Mm. thing that they that matters to them, which is national development. And, you know, the way, as you say, that the policy puts it, you know, if Australians want a predictable region, if they want a stable region, you know, if they don't want to be dealing with crises later, the way you do that is through the development program. So I suppose I'm not surprised that the region hasn't had much of a reaction. I think the messaging is extremely similar to what you've seen across the term of this government. I mean, the Defence Strategic Review, in, you know, every speech given by our our foreign defence and and, and um, development ministers. So yes, from from my side, I, I I think there's no shocks in it for the region. It's actually much more about bedding this down in, in Australian thinking. Well, actually, there was quite a strong focus in the paper on um, the uh, a, a collective attitude with defence. So that saying mm. this is really not just for sort of aid types who are often very different sensibilities uh, to mm. those of defence. And that uh, do you do you think that will change attitudes? 
Mm. Look, I think that's a hope and it's um, it, it's where, you know, where I'm spending my time working these days, bringing together defence, diplomacy and development um, because the sort of problems we face in the world need all the different tools of statecraft. They can't be solved just by one alone. Um, and, and so I think that that argument, um, almost the preventive argument, you know, you spend money now on development so you don't spend money on much more money on defence later is worth it. Um, I think, you know, Australians probably aren't aware of, of essentially how little we spend on development. Um, you know, we're, we're not anywhere near the international standards. Um, if you think, for example, the big AUKUS announcement, you know, the money that went into that, that would pay for a whole century, a whole hundred years of Australia's development program. So in that sense, development money is cheap for the impact that you get. Um, by the way, who, which country do you look to, given that this is your specialty area? Like, who's the gold standard as far as you're concerned, trying to – and I don't know whether they're mixing this whole defence aid uh, budget or if they're just focusing on aid and development. Mm. Yeah, look, I think I think what Australia is doing in terms of all tools of statecraft is actually new. There's not many international comparisons. Some people have talked about it a bit, but the idea of doing more, you know, whole of government, whole of nation approach to the way we shape the region, that's, that's new and exciting. I mean, if you're looking specifically at the development budget, um, it's usually you're not going to be surprised. The Nordics, yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Sweden and, and 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 others who do give up to the, you know, the the, the national, um, international objective. Um, until recently, the UK had stuck with that, even though, you know, they'd had times that were hard as well. Um, but they've, they've unfortunately um, gone away from the international standard now. Yes, they've got their own issues internally. Is there more money allocated to aid to go with this new policy? Yeah, not in this document. So in the government's first budget, um, they put in a big injection into development funding to bring it essentially to stabilise it, you know, to to stop it being in the free fall it had been in. Um, and in the last budget, there was actually a, a lot of funding outside development, um, so a huge package for the Pacific, which was 13 different uh, departments and agencies all, you know, using their tools, when, you know, whether that's Treasury or Defence or Police or whoever it is, to try to build our relationships in the Pacific. So I, I think, you know, the development sector will wait until, the next budget to see if, you know, the promise of this policy is fulfilled. And the underpinning, the two underpinning priorities are climate risk and gender equality. Yes. And that seems to be really hammered home if you read it. Now, yeah. uh, clearly, you, you would approve of this, would you? Yeah, oh, well, clearly those are things that, that uh, matter to Australia and matter to our partners. Um, there's also a nice focus on disability in there, which I think is is something Australia does very well. Um, and and I, I suppose when you're thinking about, you know, what impact can we have, deciding on the things that matter to us, the things where we think we have um, some, you know, expertise or specialty, um, but also responding to the needs of each and every country in the region, that's what you're trying to find. So I think you'll see a mix here between saying we have some priorities, some things we care about, and then the whole thing is going to be delivered through development partnership plans, the country strategies that we do 
with each of our partners to make this happen. And there's also a $250 million fund with the aid budget that will let the federal government take equity stakes in small and medium enterprises to spur private investment. Now, I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, no, look, it's a very interesting thing. And uh, the, the the other document that was released, well, one of the other documents that was released at the same time was the Development Finance Review. And so there's been a, a real discussion of essentially how does – how do we bring in more money into the region? Mm. You know, so um, we know that, for example, the infrastructure needs in the region are absolutely massive and, and you know, well beyond anything that any one country like Australia could ever try to fund. Um, but we can do clever things that help bring it in. So, you know, we can, for example, help in the early services to, to make a project viable um, and then once it's viable, you go out to market and you get the private money. Or it might be that if we take a bit of an equity stake, that's enough of a guarantee for the private sector money to come in. And so I think it's all about that, saying it's not all about us funding things with old-style grants because that mm. really isn't how finances work so much now. But, you know, how can we be really intelligent and, and sort of catalytic? How can we put a little bit of money in that brings lots more money? Well, that's the whole CEFC model, isn't it, which is um, being taken to other areas as well. In terms of our overall contribution to the region, Melissa, aren't there activities Mm. happening outside the aid budget? For instance, Mm. the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme, um, because there are now more than 35,000 people employed under that scheme. Yeah, and I find That's that That's been really extended, exciting, hasn't it? That we're thinking about the way we contribute to our neighbours' development, not just in terms of the development program, but in terms of all those tools of statecraft, you know. So, um, I mean, the, the Labor Mobility Scheme is a great example because, again, it's not very expensive um, for us to do. Um, it's very much in mutual interest. We, we want more workers in particular industries and people in the Pacific, you know, want those economic opportunities that don't always exist if they're on a, you know, a smaller or an isolated area, you know, they just don't have the same economic opportunities. So, you know, it's a, it's a win-win in so many ways. Um, and, you know, interestingly, it's a thing, of course, a lot of countries can't or wouldn't do, um, you know, that they would be all about, you know, mm. providing an aid program, using their own workers. We are saying, no, we want that closeness. And I think... But, it, and presumably the, the emphasis on employing local workers too. Exactly. And there's a lot of focus in this on localisation, on, you know, understanding um, our partners' needs and what they want and building up their capacity, not just shipping in Australians to do things. Uh, look, finally, when AusAid uh, mm-hmm. was cut, when that was, you know, the, the, the specialised agency, as it were, to deliver aid, a lot of, re- and, and it was incorporated into Department of Foreign Affairs, a lot of really dedicated specialist staff were lost to DFAT and there was a lot of, it was wasn't an easy fit. And I didn't want to sort of overemphasize that throughout this discussion. But is that an issue? Uh, Is there a sort of whole raft of um, skilled people who need somehow to be brought back? 
Yeah, look, I think if, if you put in both the um, amalgamation of AusAid plus the budget cuts over 10 years, you know, there's a real um, capability issue. Uh, and so something that the public hasn't seen but has been done is there's been a DFAT capability review which looked at, um, you know, what does what sort of capability, what sort of workforce do does DFAT need for the future and what does it have now? Um there's been a bit of reporting on it, but the, the main thing hasn't been um, published. And uh, that gives, I think, a really good idea of what's needed in terms of, you know, rebuilding staff capabilities um, and, and, of course, it'll be long-term. Um, that said, if I, if I can finish with mm -hmm. that, um, the, the, the long-term is, I suppose, one of the things I do want to emphasise about this. Um, I was lucky enough last week to, to go to Vietnam for the 50th um, uh uh, anniversary celebrations, you know, that 50 years ago we'd, we'd been at war and 50 years later we're celebrating 50 years of, of, of positive relations. And I looked at where the relationship is now, which is very positive, um, and thought so much about the way that that was 50 years of our development program, you know, health and education when that was what was needed, helping with the economic opening and the first banks and the, the, the IT, you know, um, doing the first bridge across the Mekong, um, the policy design, the governance, where, you know, continuing to work on human rights. And I look at how much we've been a part of Vietnam's successful journey. To me, it's the counterfactual. What if we hadn't been there? What if we hadn't been doing that? You know, Vietnam could have ended up being like North Korea. And imagine what the region would be like for us if Vietnam was North Korea versus the country it is now. So it's understanding that it's absolutely in our interest that we work with countries for them to develop and be essentially the best version of themselves. Oh, that's an excellent um, segue to my final question to you because uh, a listener la asked last week uh, that do we know where our diplomats are? Could, could we? Could you, Saturday Extra, explore a bit more? Now, I'm not asking you to give an overview now, but yeah. like, can we look anywhere? Uh, is it published, published where our diplomatic force is um, deployed around the world? Uh, it is. Um, of course, that's in the middle of a government website, which is never that easy, but Thankfully for us, the Lowy Institute does a very good uh, tracker which looks at diplomatic services around the world. It will show you all the places that a country has diplomatic missions um, and give you a sense of how many, you know, how, how many resources have been put in there. And traditionally, Australia has been really quite low. You know, if you look at the OECD countries or the G20 countries, we're like right at the bottom of those. Um, so there's, you know, also part of the advocacy to keep saying the work that our diplomats do, you know, on mm. diplomacy, on development, it matters and we need to have that workforce out there. And that's in the middle of the and that's in the Department of Foreign Affairs website, is it? You just you go there. Uh, oh, sorry, Lowy. You said Lowy. I would the Lowy right. one is the is the with the pretty graphics and easy to look at. Good. So I would go to that one. <laughs> okay, we'll go to that one. Look, Melissa, thank you very much indeed. Thank you again. Really good to speak, always. Uh, Melissa Connolly-Tyler, who uh, is a development specialist and also uh, executive director of the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue based out of Melbourne University. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.